This psalm certainly is one of the most familiar psalms in the Psalter, and if we're allowed to speak in such ways, we could say that it's one of the most important psalms in the Psalter, though, well, that would apply to many, many psalms. But the psalm is quoted as part of Paul's argument in Romans chapter 4. So certainly we place it highly for its gospel content just from that. And I wanted to come to this psalm tonight. It is familiar. I think it's a fitting psalm to reflect upon. But it's also a psalm that I want to bring alongside by way of contrast in some thoughts that we shared this morning, not particularly from our text in Romans 2, but as we wind our thoughts to conclusion from Romans 3, I think something that brought alongside this gives us much food for thought. But let us read together this psalm, consider something of its main truth before we come even to that comparison. Psalm 32, a psalm of David. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place, thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Well, amen. We trust the Lord to add his blessing to the public reading of his word. The psalm that we've read this evening, I said, is a very important psalm. And it is for many a very familiar psalm. I trust it is for you here. We've looked at it many times and from many different directions over the years. It is a psalm of David that comes, we believe, best we can determine, and certainly the context fits it quite nicely, if you will. It comes after a season of sin. It comes after a point of confession It is, many believe, and I tend to agree quite heartily, the companion psalm to Psalm 51, which of course is David's great prayer of confession for his sin with Bathsheba. But this is a psalm that comes after that. It's a psalm that still looks back to that sin, but it looks back to it from a different perspective, from the perspective of being in sin. 
of not confessing sin. Of being in a season for a child of God in which fellowship and communion with God is hindered. David gives us quite a graphic description of that experience. The psalm opens with a familiar term. It's the same term that opens the first psalm. So aptly chosen to open the Psalter. Blessed is the man. This happiness that's in view. And of course, the happiness that's in view in this psalm is the happiness that is the experience of someone who knows that he's a sinner, but also knows that his sins have been forgiven. They've been dealt with. They've been washed in the blood. And fellowship with his God is restored. When we look at our own sin, of course that's our only point of reference when it comes to experience. For the child of God, sin brings sorrow. Sin brings sadness. Sin breaks fellowship, not only with God, but with others. Sin ruins relationships. You ever think about life, if you will, just from that perspective? We were created to have pleasing, fulfilling, happy, blessed, eternal relationships with God and with each other. And sin is what interrupts that. Sin is what ruins that. I didn't get to this point in the morning message, but if you look at that first chapter of Romans, when I was trying to just summarize that again in our introduction this morning, but sin that's broken fellowship with God breaks down relationships with others. And if you look at that catalog of sins, the longest of the several catalogs that Paul gives us in his epistles, all those sins and crimes against one another that flow from this sinful heart, this alienation from God. It's often said with most inappropriate humor. The sinner talks about going to hell. He says, well, at least that's where all my friends are, so I'll have a good time. Now those relationships are ruined. There's nothing there but conflict. There's nothing there but barriers between you and others. And so it's no wonder that the soul that's in sin is unhappy. The soul that knows forgiveness is happy. Sin makes us unclean in the sight of God. Our conscience, as we've been looking in Romans, our conscience makes us understand that and then makes us unclean in our own sight. And what misery follows that? It's peace and happiness that flow from forgiveness. And that's what this psalm is about. I don't want to, as I said, go into all the details of the psalm. We've studied it at quite some length years ago. 
But I'll never forget the description that Sinclair Ferguson gives in his, I think it's at least, the series on the Marrow Controversy, which you can find in text basically now in his wonderful volume, The Whole Christ. But he says here in this psalm, David literally ransacks the vocabulary of Old Testament words for sin. Transgression, sin, iniquity. He deals with things, the transgressions, is that when we go out of bounds. We do those things that aren't allowed. Sin in itself, in the term it's described here also in these opening verses, has to do with our failure to do the things that are in bounds. The things that we're supposed to be doing. We call them at times sins of omission and sins of commission. And that last term, iniquity, well that has to do with things that are perverse, that are twisted. Of course we see that in that opening section of Romans. But as you go through the psalm, and if you look at verse 3, David speaks here of his condition. When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture's turned into the drought of summer. This is why many believe, and I think it seems evident that this psalm is looking back and reflecting upon that season in David's life when he'd committed the great sin with Bathsheba, and yet he was impenitent. He hadn't come to the point with that broken and contrite spirit that we read of in Psalm 51 to confess his sins to God. And so we read here of his keeping silence. The reason I wanted to come to this psalm this evening, if you recall this morning, I jumped ahead, if you will, in Paul's argument that we're working through in Romans 2 now about the revelation of wrath. And he comes to that point in chapter 3 where he uses the phrase that every mouth may be stopped. There's a silence that is honorable. There's a silence that is good and necessary when it comes to us thinking and dealing with our sins. That's not the silence that David's talking about here. The silence that Paul is speaking about in Romans 3 is a coming to a point of silence in which, particularly those he's been wrestling with in chapter 2, stop seeking to defend themselves. They stop seeking to make themselves look acceptable by pointing out how unacceptable the sinners that are doing worse things than they are. You see, there's this speaking of self-justification that must be silenced. And that's where the Lord, of course, brings all of us when He brings us to Himself to the point of conversion. Lord, what can I say? There is no defense. There is no excuse for me. I'm the sinner. I'm the transgressor. I am guilty before you. I have broken your law. I am wrong. That's the silence we have to be brought to. The cessation of self-justification. 
But David here is speaking about a different silence. David has enough of a gospel heart. David is a believing man. He's a man that's been described as a man after God's own heart. It's no mystery to him what's going on. He has sinned. He sinned awfully. He can't justify that. But he's also at a point where he hasn't spoken to God about it. And I think sometimes the devil and our own flesh becomes involved in which we don't want to take our sins to God. We're not defending them per se. Perhaps we're so overwhelmed with guilt that we listen to that lie. There's no remedy. I dare say, none of us in this room have committed sins of the level and nature of David's. David keeps silence. And if we read correctly, it seems, at least on the surface here, it was coming to the point that it was literally wrecking his health. His bones waxed old within himself. David, the man after God's own heart, needs a reminder of the Gospel. He had kept silent, not as the sinner that's seeking to justify himself should be silent in Romans 3, but he kept silent from the standpoint of a believer who should have been going to God and had not yet done so. You can think of different reasons for this type of silence before God. Perhaps we don't want to admit our sin. We don't want the spotlight put on it. That certainly could be a wrong but common motivation in us creating our own distance, if you will, between ourselves and God. There are times when we perhaps entertain the thought that our sin is so bad, the guy in Romans 3, he's the guy thinking, my sin's not that bad. It's the other guy's sin that's bad, and he's explaining that to God, and he needs to be quiet. But here there can be some of the thought, my sin is so bad, how can I take it to God? How can it be forgiven? David could multiply the thoughts of any man knew of God. If any man had an experience of God, who's had more so than I have? Here's the sweet psalmist of Israel. How could God forgive me now? Friend, every time you're tempted to Keep silence. Every time you're tempted to refrain, to hold yourself back from going to God in confession, just think through, if you will, this equation. 
this sin, my sin, is somehow so significant that the blood of Jesus isn't enough. God has said it is. God has said He is satisfied with that atoning death. It's not a little sin. Actually, if we understand confession, the New Testament language itself bears it out. When we confess our sins, we're saying the same thing about our sins that God says. We're agreeing with God's just condemnation of our sin. We're not hiding it. We're not keeping silent. We're admitting it. And we're repenting of it. I love one of the things that Ferguson dealt with in those messages so many years ago now. In our theology, sometimes we get to the point of dancing on the head of pens, dealing with very specific meanings, and even coming down in our understanding of the Gospel to a a sequence. The Latin phrase for it is the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. Of course, one of the big parts of that is our debate with Arminianism, which comes first. Regeneration or faith? Well, the Arminian says faith comes first. That's what God bases our generation on. Regeneration on. He sees this guy repented and confessed. I'm going to regenerate him. Our understanding of it is the opposite. And my depraved heart, I'm not going to be brought to a point of repentance and confession until God breathes life into my dead soul. Well, come with me to another little point of important thinking about specifics in theology. Repentance and faith. There are really two sides of the one coin that we call salvation. There's no salvation without repentance. There's no salvation without faith. And in many ways, we could argue they're simultaneous. We repent believingly. And we believe we come by faith with repentance. But if we have to assign a priority, Ferguson argues, it must be to faith. Because we must believe that the God to whom we're coming the God that we approach, the God we break silence with, we come to confess our sins before, is willing and able to forgive. Isn't that one of the stanzas we sing so joyfully in hearts come ye sinners? David had nearly wrecked himself by keeping silent. 
He needed to speak to God. Not the irreverent, blasphemous speaking of the self-justifying religious man in Romans 3. No, the humble speaking of the penitent sinner believingly approaching a saving God. David came. He confessed. And it's amazing as you read through the psalm, the joy that flows. He speaks about keeping silence and all of the terrors that came from that. And then the joy of forgiveness. The songs of deliverance. His giving testimony to others about the grace that He's known and does know in the Gospel of Christ. Well, when we come tonight to the table, when we partake of an element that reminds us of the broken body of Jesus, we come to partake of an element that reminds us of the blood of Jesus shed for our sins, we are confessing, we're proclaiming again the Gospel that God saves sinners. And that the blood of Christ is enough. And that we reckon upon that sacrifice. We're happy to own that atonement as ours. And to know the forgiveness and the happiness that comes from sins forgiven. We could never be happy if sins were Forgotten, brushed under the rug, but never dealt with. But you see, that's not the Gospel. The Gospel isn't God just brushing our sins under the rug and saying we'll not worry about that. No, the Gospel is God who knows every thought. Who would put the light of His holiness upon all of our sin. And then proclaiming to us, I've laid all of this sin upon Jesus. David comes, confesses, and tastes again to see that the Lord is good. Let us tonight, whatever our state, let us commune with our God. Perhaps we have no secret sin or sin that's unconfessed and needs to be dealt with. Yet we rehearse the Gospel afresh. We confess again that we're unworthy. We confess again that's what the Gospel's all about. Jesus saving sinners. God justifying the ungodly through the person and work of Jesus. So let us with gospel hearts tonight, let us not keep silence. Let us speak with a God who has set the table of the gospel for sinners like ourselves. I want to ask you to take your blue hymnal tonight.